Hi, and welcome to The After Show, a new weekly podcast by Apre, a digital platform that connects experienced professional women with companies seeking talent and diversity. Join our community at apregroup.com. That's A-P-R-E-S group.com. I'm Jennifer Gevsky, your host and co-founder of Apre. Each week, I'll be talking to women who inspire, speakers, authors, coaches, and other experts with valuable tips and insights, along with employers who are hiring women returning to work or just repositioning their careers. Barbara Rebell is the author of the best-selling personal finance book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, proven advice from high achievers on how to live your dreams and have financial freedom. Her book combines unique personal financial stories from inspirational leaders with targeted specific actionable advice to help readers take charge of their money. Bobby is also an award-winning TV anchor and personal finance columnist, most recently at Thomson Reuters. She was also a reporter at PBS and has held various producer positions at CNN and CNBC. Bobby, thank you so much for being on the after show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I can tell you that I am, I'm really excited. Uh, I recently finished reading your book, and the subject of women and finance is something that I feel really passionately about because at Opry, we talk to so many women at different stages of their careers, and finance and, and where they are in their sort of financial journey comes up quite a bit. And um, before we start really diving into the book and sort of your own journey, I want to just talk about some statistics, because when I say this to people about women in finance, I think sometimes people don't realize how scary it can really be. And so here's some statistics just to set the stage for our conversation. Of the 62 million wage and salaried women, ages 21 to 64, working in the United States, only 45% participate in a retirement plan. Almost 30% of non-married women aged 65 or older are poor or near poor. Women on average earn 76% of what men earn, resulting in lifetime earning differential of $250,000. And Social Security, based on earnings made in one's lifetime, women not only earn less than men, but they also leave the workforce for an average of 12 years to care for children or relatives. This reduces their Social Security benefits. And here's my last one and something that I think is extraordinarily important, is that we live longer than men. On average, we live five to seven years longer, and therefore we have to make our money stretch longer. So that all sets the stage, I think, for why your book is so important and why I just think anyone listening to this should, should buy a copy of it. So let, before we dig deeper into the concept of finance and, and what women should be doing, I want to talk about your journey and sort of where you are in your life. Because I know recently you just had a big sort of career pivot. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of where you are right now in your own personal career journey? Absolutely. Well, um, I did. I just did a a major career pivot. I left Thomson Reuters after 16 years to focus on my own business, which is focused on the book and the various opportunities that have come my way from the book. It was not an accidental, just, you know, fly-by-night decision. This was a very strategically planned, basically a two-year plan. And in fact, I had spoken with your co-founder, Nicole Cole, about it while it was going on and while Prey was being uh, imagined and built from the ground up. And I have to give you guys credit. I mean, I can't believe how much has been accomplished in such a short period of time. But you guys were laser-focused, and it's been amazing to see the results. Um, 
I decided that I had to make a change. I'd been at Reuters, as I said, for 16 years. And after my son was born, I have a nine-year-old now, they had allowed me to work four days a week. I, of course, was only making a four-day-a-week salary. But nevertheless, that was a good accommodation. But things got dicey when a new boss came in and he insisted that I work five days a week. I did get some new opportunities because of that. But it really caused a lot of problems for my family. And there was limited financial upside because Reuters did not allow me to freelance. So I didn't have any way to earn any extra real income. And I really wanted to get back to my roots and focus more on personal finance and more tangible news that people could actually use to improve their financial lives. I was doing a lot of stock market news, which is great also. But it started to feel commoditized. So I really was looking for a change. And so I set about on this plan. And now it's it's really come full force. And I'm focusing on the book and my financial literacy advocacy career. Well, I think you've done something that I failed to do, which is be strategic about your career journey. I mean, when I was working full time and opted out of the workforce I really didn't have a great plan. I didn't really strategize about what I was doing, which I think is probably more common than not. So tell us a little bit about what sort of strategies you put in place to set yourself up to um, be in the current position you're in now. Well, I thought about what I did have rather than what I didn't have. I thought about the resources I had while at Thompson Borders, which were many. First of all, I was able to learn a lot of new skills, and that was always very important. So I wasn't one foot out the door and focusing on that. I was focusing on, I'm here. There's so much I can do. So for example, even though I was a television reporter, I started writing a personal finance column, which was my passion. And I'd become friendly with a woman who was in charge of that area. And she gave me that opportunity. So therefore, I already had another skill set that would be marketable once I left. I made sure to be learning as much technology as I could. So I learned to do various video editing programs, whether it be Final Cut Pro, Avid, and so on. I learned as many different skills as I could while there. I also got involved in, for example, their social media platforms where I was hosting um, Facebook Live. So again, another different potential revenue stream, another different skill set, and really taking advantage of everything that I had there, which is so important. And then even on the financial side, I was always making sure to put the maximum amount in my 401k to take advantage of that because you talked, you had really staggering statistics at the top of the show about the precarious positions so many women are in because they take a break from the workforce. When you work for a corporation, it's really important to take advantage of the financial, I hate to call them perks because they're not really perks, they're must-haves, but you have to do that. So I was always making sure to do all of that so that if and when I left, I had as much in my back pocket as possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And not only were you doing sort of media, television media while you're at Reuters, you also started writing. You started doing a print column as well, right? Exactly. Right. So I had, this is my third book idea, Jen, and I also had a documentary idea. So I was always thinking of things. This was the book that finally stuck and it sold. So it's important for people to know this is not simply, oh, I had an idea, boom, I sold it, done, wrap it up with a bow. This was a lot of years of coming up with different concepts, working with an agent, figuring out what would sell, what would be marketable, what could I leverage back again from Reuters? Well, I had met and was meeting incredible people. That was something that I could bring to the personal finance space that was unique. So I thought about what's the best way to leverage that? Well, if I can get people that I've met to tell me stories that are inspiring about their own lives, that's going to be something that's unique. So I really worked on that. In terms of the actual getting it done, once I had a book concept that had very good feedback, I really got down to business and I set a very specific timeline that I was going to do the actual writing of the book in about nine months 
and had a schedule, even walking through, that once I sold the book, it would take about a year and, you know, down through the actual release date, which ended up being probably six months later than I had thought because the publishing business is much slower than I realized. I was very naive about what I could do. I thought I could push things through faster, but in fact, the industry is the way it is. Um, but because of that schedule, I really laid out very specifically what I was going to do, breaking it down month, um, month by month where I wanted to be and even, you know, weekly, the kinds of goals that I had. And I had a real structure. I would get dressed for work early in the morning when I woke up my son at 6.45, drop off was at 7.45. I would go straight to a coffee shop near the school so I wouldn't waste time in transit. I wouldn't go back to my house and write. I would go the fastest I could, the least amount of friction, the closest place, work for two hours, and then go to work, go to my paying corporate job, come home in the evening, put my son to bed, see my husband, and then I would usually go somewhere else, usually Whole Foods across the street. They had bright formica, bright fluorescent lighting, formica tables. They had outlets. They had Wi-Fi. And I would just get to work for another two hours, focused, and that would be it. And that was my routine for quite some time, but it got it done. Yeah, and, and you and I talked before today about the fact that this was, that while this is your first book that was published, this was not your first book idea. And your prior book ideas didn't, you know, quote, sell to your agent and slash editor or however you want to say it. And I think that's really important for people to know because we talk a lot about um, perseverance and you are going to get rejected. And it's not just always roses and you have to have thicker skin. And so tell us how you persevered through those times when you're getting rejected with your book ideas. I think that's just something that's an individual thing. I was very determined. I knew that I had to find some kind of a pivot out of this career because while I loved it day to day, at the end of the day, it simply didn't pay enough to sustain doing it indefinitely. Media jobs have really changed. The demand, it's, it's you know, they're just doing business. It's business, but the reality is many media companies have become content farms. It's a commodity, and what you used to have all day to do, say, a two-and-a-half-minute video piece, now they want you to do six pieces that are 45 seconds. And they don't necessarily want to give you a raise and you can't really have income outside. So you were stuck in a financial, um, there was a real feeling to, to what you could make financially. And I was leaving my family every day to do this job and I needed to have, you know, something to go to. And also, frankly, you never want to be completely dependent on a job because you never know what's going to happen. So I was really motivated to find something on my own terms, on my own timeline so that I would retain control of the process. So let's talk about your book in a little bit more detail. Again, it's called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, Proven Advice from High Achievers on How to Live Your Dreams and Have Financial Freedom. And I found the book to be, first of all, in the format that you, in you, that you did it by talking to individuals and learning their financial stories and their financial sort of aha moments. It was a very quick and easy read. Um, that I found not only entertaining, but educational. So um, talk a little bit about why you decided to structure the book in this way. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the compliments. I really appreciate it. And it means a lot to me. Every single person that says they actually took the time to read it is so special to me because we're all running around. We're so busy. And I purposely wrote the book in what I call sound bites because I remember when I was Starting the when I was pitching the idea to my agent, he kind of made a joke. He might be mad at me for saying this, but he said, "Are you really going to write it? You're a TV reporter. How are you going to write it? Are you going to hire a ghostwriter?" And I decided to embrace that and say, "Hey, I am a TV reporter. I'm going to write it like a TV reporter in soundbites, so that it's easily digestible 
and people read it for real. It doesn't become a doorstop because so many financial books are bought but not read. So that was my first motivation is how are people going to consume this? You know, moms, for example, very busy on the go. They don't necessarily have an hour to sit down and dive into a tiny print deep book about investing strategies, but they are willing to read little stories about um, personal experiences of people that they admire. And then a quick takeaway and maybe a few specific tips on how they can incorporate into their lives and then put it down and pick it up again. And that was really important to me. One of the pieces of advice that comes out in your book, and I'm going to talk about a few points here, and a, and a couple I think I would, would put as controversial. And, and one of those sort of controversial pieces of advice are for, for, for moms, which is that women should never leave the workforce, even if you aren't necessarily, quote, making a profit. So talk to us a little bit about that. How do you, do you arrive at that conclusion? Well, this is something I've come to terms with over the years because there were many years, especially when I was working four days a week, so I was still paying for childcare four days a week. I was home one day a week, but I was making an 80% salary. I really wasn't making a profit, and it was very frustrating, and I had my doubts, but coming out the other side, I think that was the right decision because if you leave the workforce for a chunk of time, I can't think of, I mean, it could happen, but in general, you shouldn't be where you would have been if you had been there all those years. There are people that they, you know, it may be a good reason that you left, but at the end of the day, you weren't there for those 10 years and you can't expect to ever make up those years. And that includes things like your 401k and investing in yourself, investing in the skills that I never would have had the skills that I have, including the technical skills, had I left the workforce. I do want to be clear. I believe it's the best financial decision. That doesn't mean it's the best decision for your family overall. But financially, I don't think you can ever catch up. And I'm, so I'm coming from a financial perspective. I do not believe you ever catch up. If you go back to the same kind of career and expect to be in the same position, it's not going to happen. And frankly, it's harsh to say, but it shouldn't happen because someone that put in, let's say you said the average break is 12 years. If I put in 12 more years, you work in an industry for 10 years, you stop. I keep going for 12 more years. I have 22 years experience. You have 10. Should we really be paid the same? I can't make that case. I can't make that case. That doesn't mean your reason wasn't a great reason. But it's sort of not relevant from a business perspective. You don't have those last 12 years of skills. You don't. And it's harsh to say. I think one thing that's really important, too, is when women are making this decision about leaving the workforce, they need to do it with their eyes wide open. Because if mm -hmm. the decision-making process is simply, I'm not making enough to even pay the babysitter, that's not reason enough from a financial perspective to leave. Because you're actually going to pay a much greater price than just that over the course of your career. And I think that's very eye-opening for women, you know, and it's very simple to just say the babysitter makes X and I make Y and this is what the outcome is going to be. But that's a very short-sighted way of looking at that particular issue. And I think it's the issue we hear the most, which is about childcare. Exactly. I completely agree. I see the logic because I went through that. I was thinking, I'm going to work. I'm not seeing my child all day and I'm not making a profit. This is silly. But I do see now, as I said, coming out the other end, that the career trajectory is very hard. My friends that are trying to get back in the workforce are coming in maybe below where they even left. And then they're feeling behind and it's really never the same. Again, it's a financial decision, but it, it, it comes at a cost. And, and the other thing that I didn't realize that I've come to appreciate, and everyone's child is different. Everyone's children are different. Everyone's family situation is different. But I remembered 
my son coming back. I have a now nine-year-old. He was probably five years old at the time. And I remember him coming back from a group play date. And I said, oh, who was there? And he went through who was there with their various nannies. And then he said, and so-and-so was there with her mommy. And I felt so sad because I feel like the mommy doesn't have a job and I feel sad. And it was such an eye-opener. First of all, he shouldn't feel sad. This mom was killing it. She was doing amazing volunteer stuff. She was, she's great. But from my son's perspective, he only knew a working mommy and he was very proud. I have a job where he understood what I did. He knew where I was going. He was proud of me. I had such tremendous guilt that I was leaving him all this time. And yet for him, it was just the way it was. He didn't think anything of it. And he was very happy with his nanny. He had me full time on the weekends for most of his young life. He had me on Fridays and that, that was his normal was to be with a nanny and the mommies were home at night and it was okay. He was perfectly fine. Everyone should do what's right for them. But that tremendous guilt that I had went away because I saw how proud he was of me. Yeah, that's a great story. And, and you know, it's funny because you talk to new moms and new moms feel so guilty about leaving their, you know, we're just riddled with guilt women. I feel like no matter what we do, but you know, with new moms, they have their, you know, little babies and they don't want to leave them. And the fact of the matter is the baby really doesn't know whether or not you're there or gone as long as someone's there. They don't know. No. And yeah, and he's come to work with me and it, it's having your kid walk into the TV studio and see you anchoring. Oh, he was so proud. It was so sweet. And even now, he's so proud. He says, my mom's an author. Her book has done so well. She's just being an author full time. He's so proud of me. He sees my book in Barnes & Noble, and it's the best. It's what you work for. It really is. Your kids will be really proud of you if they see what you're accomplishing at work. That doesn't mean you shouldn't spend a ton of time with them. It absolutely matters. I was I killed myself to be home for bedtime every night to the detriment to some degree of my career. But it's a balance. And I know that's a, such a cliche to say, but it, it really is. But the presumption that your child is going to be angry at you forever because you were working when they were young, it's just not the case in, in most cases. I can't speak for every child. But, of course, um, in my case, I think that my son's really proud of what I've accomplished. So I want to talk about two of my favorite points in the book. And the first one comes from Steve Lacey, who's the CEO of Meredith Corporation. And his advice, which I think you summarize, um, is this. It's, quote, it's on you. You must be responsible for your own financial planning, end quote. And I think that I love that advice because it applies especially to women, which is don't, don't assume someone else is going to take care of your financial situation. It's on you. You have to take responsibility. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, I agree with everything you said. And I think it's important whether women are in the workforce or they are taking a break to be aware of what's going on. So if you're in the workforce, as I said, make sure you're taking advantage of all the corporate, we call them perks, but they're, they're really not. They're really necessities, including retirement planning, whatever insurance you want. You can sometimes get that at discount. Make sure you're doing your flexible spending. I mean, you know, no one will necessarily hold your hand and tell you to make sure to send up for the maximum domestic flex spending that you can do, the maximum health flex spending that you can do. But you need to be doing that. You need to be aware of all of that. And whether you're working or not, and if you're married, be on top of what your partner is doing. Because don't assume just because your husband is working that he has maxed out his 401k. Get in there. That's your money, too. And make sure you know what's going on. Make sure he's signed up for the appropriate life insurance. Make sure he's, he has the right beneficiaries, that he's done everything. It's a family situation. I believe women should always be CFO of the family. And at the very least, be co-CFO. Know what's going on with you and with everyone relevant to your financial life. That may even be your parents. 
Yeah, I love that. I love CFO of your family. And I think that it's it's really true. And and people who know me well have heard me say this before, which is for me, Apre and what we're doing at Apre became very real for me when I met women who were undergoing personal fi- family either tragedies or transitions. So whether it's divorce or husband dying and you see true fear in their eyes of, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what my financial situation is. I don't know how I'm going to support my family. Um, And that's scary and it's real. So, you know, I always say, you know, it's great if you've made this decision and you're not going to work um, and everything just works out perfectly. Yeah, you, you might be okay. But in a lot of circumstances, that's not the case. It happens, unfortunately, more often than not. I was divorced. I'm now remarried very happily, but I was divorced at 30. And I have to tell you, I was very naive in my 20s because I had assumed that, well, I got married and I'm all set. And when I have kids, my husband will work and I'll stay home. And a lot of my beliefs that I'm talking about now came from that divorce because suddenly I realized this actually could happen to me. It's always something that that happened to someone that you know. And you don't think it's going to happen to you, but it could. So it's important that you... um, have that plan. And a lot of the plan is just as we were talking about being the CFO of your family. If you know what's going on in your finance, your husband's finances, and as I said, even your parents' finances, because your parents get older, they may need your help. um, That's going to serve you really well. Always, I think having one foot in the workforce is really important because even if you tone it down, if you take it down and you're working three or four days a week or you're working from home, you can always ramp it up much more easily if you're already there. Getting your foot in the door for a job is very different from saying you're scaling back to three days or you're working one or two days from home and then you just say, you know what, I'm going to go back to five days in the office because you need to earn more money or be more present for networking and so on, whatever it may be. It's really hard if you do a cold, hard stop and then you want to go back in. So last piece of advice from the book that that we're going to have time to talk about is Again, something that I think is interesting, which is you don't talk about or, or you don't advocate being overly frugal. Yes. Talk to us about that. Well, this comes a lot from my corporate reporting because we went through the recession and many companies were cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. But at a certain point, you have to raise the top line or you won't be successful. So I absolutely advocate not spending money frivolously. You should not go out and have a $5 latte um, at Starbucks or any coffee shop if you're not saving money in your 401k. And uh, my friend David Bach, who wrote The Automatic Millionaire, talks about the fact that you you can, if you say you have no money to do these things, if you just automate it and save, for example, the $5 a day instead of having a latte, that will serve you well. So I absolutely believe in not being frivolous with your money, and I want to be clear about that. That said, there's only so much you can cut. At a certain point, you have to raise the top line. So that's what I mean by it. So that may be a side hustle where you have secondary income by doing something else on the side, maybe doing graphic design for websites, maybe helping with writing, doing some freelance writing on the side if it was somebody in an industry like mine. Whatever it may be, you can walk dogs on the weekend for extra cash to pay down your student loan, but you can generate extra income that way or even asking for a raise, focusing on that, finding ways to earn more income, going to a similar job somewhere else at a higher level where you'll get a higher salary by making the jump. You ha- at a certain point, you have to raise the top line or you won't make progress. That's sort of the point. So I'm not telling people to be frivolous with their money. I'm just saying at the end of the day, there's only so much you can cut. I mean, really, you can sit home and eat you know, mac and cheese every night. You're not going to get rich. You need to earn more money. 
So the book, again, is called How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, Proven Advice from High Achievers on How to Live Your Dreams and Have Financial Freedom. Bobby Rebell, thank you so much for being with us today. We only scratched the surface of all the great advice in the book. So for those listening, definitely take a moment, jump on Amazon, buy the book, and um, help yourself be more financially secure. Thanks again, Bobby. Thanks so much, Jen. That was Bobby Rebell, author of How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. I love what Bobby said about women being the CFO of their families. It's so true that even if you're not in charge of your family's finances, you should at least have a solid understanding of them. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.